Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Daily Evolver. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. Today we are going to focus on a fun topic and specifically a great work of art that has been very culturally significant, uh, particularly in the, the American culture, since its debut in 1965, and that is the Star Trek franchise in all of its many forms and iterations and movies and TV and so forth. But most particularly, its newest incarnation, which is a TV series called Star Trek Discovery, 15 hour long episodes uh, that are now all released and available on, on CBS All Access and I think Netflix outside the US. So it's, it's the available for watching. And, um, and I will confess that I have not always been a totally dutiful Star Trek watcher. It's funny, it came out at roughly the same time as Lost in Space, and I was a Lost in Space junkie. I was 11, 12 years old, and, you know, 1966, and, uh, and Star Trek, I didn't, you know, it was somehow too deep. I don't know. You know, there was all these plot details and, you know, all these battles, and, uh, but, I, but, but I certainly appreciate it as an art form. I've seen the movies, and, and I am loving this new series. I'm not quite finished with it. 15 episodes is a long commitment, but um, real close. And, uh, and what has helped me appreciate it is that I have some very smart friends who explain things to me and they help me get my head around it. So um, I have today convened for you my two main pop culture sci-fi advisors to help us all more deeply appreciate this great work of art. So first of all, Brother Corey DeVos, uh, Editor-in-Chief of Integral Life and our host here at Integral Live and who joins me quite often. And uh, Brother Corey, good to see you. Good to see you, man. And yeah. by the way, you, you can just call us nerds. It's totally okay. Yeah, I know. Or Trekkies, for sure, for, sure. This, for this episode. Uh, and, 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 and your credentials are quite deep, Corey. You, you, you have an uh, a, a, uh, article that is on Integral Life. It was, it was published, I think, originally in Evolve magazine. That's right. But it's called Star Trek Discovery and the Moral Arc of the Universe. And I love that, I have to say. So, and it's really great. And we can link to it here. So that'll be kind of a companion for this. It's, a, it's an essay. And, um, and then together we have our special guest, Cindy Wigglesworth. Hey, Cindy. Hey, live long and prosper. Great to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Good to have you. Thank uh, you. Uh, Cindy's been in the integral scene for a long time as a dear friend of both Corey's and mine and a significant innovator in her own right. Uh, her main contribution is in expanding our understanding of the spiritual line of development 
And I love that. And she's the creator of the SQ21 Spiritual Intelligence Self-Assessment, as well as the book SQ21, The 21 Skills of Spiritual Intelligence. And I would recommend that book. And, um, but today, Cindy, you are here in your role as a very committed and long-term Trekkie, right? Since the very first season of the original series, I am a card-carrying trekker. I was a member of the fan club. I got an autographed photo from William Shatner back when I was like 12 years old. And, oh my God. Uh, yeah, pretty hardcore. Been to several Star Trek conventions where I have to tell you, when I go to the conventions, I am on the lowest rung of the nerd food chain. But really? um, yes, but out in the regular world, I kind of rank as a Star Trek nerd. But at a Star Trek convention, I don't speak Klingon. You know, I do dress up, but uh, I kind of can't memorize all the episode names. So, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm an adequate fan, but not a true fan at a convention. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Well, you're, you're, you're plenty for us here. And also just uh, a bit of sci-fi fan in general. I mean, the three of us did uh, one of our most popular posts, actually. It was called Star Wars, Star Wars, not Star Trek, Star Wars, The Force Evolves, which was about the latest Star Wars movies and that whole franchise. And you're a huge Star Wars fan, as are you, right, Corey? Yep. And Cindy? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And my husband is also, and we refer to ourselves as bispatial. Really? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then let's start there. So we, we've, done our, we, we've done our talk on Star Wars, and here we are at Star Trek. And let's start with you, Cindy. How would you f position one against the other? How do, how do particularly to Star Trek light you up in a different way? Uh, how would you position them? So there's several important distinctions. They're complementary. They're kind of yin and yang to each other. But Star Trek came first, captured my heart first. Um, I... I would say the most important thing about Star Trek for me is it gave me hope at a time when I was entering puberty and the world was in Cold War and Vietnam and, you know, duck under your desk and cover and hope that you don't get nuked kind of a place. And ecological awareness was just breaking through and this sort of sense of will we make it was heavy on my heart even at 12 years old. And so what Gene Roddenberry did for us by creating this series was to say, we can make it. And here's what it would look like if humanity grows up. So for me, I would say, and I just came to this language about a week or so ago, Star Trek has been my vision board for my whole life. Mm. Like, what's the vision of the future that you hope to see? It's a future where humanity grows up. It's been an evolutionary ideal not that we ever become perfect or that a utopia is achieved, but it's an optimistic view of the future with like breadcrumbs kind of leading us to how that might look. You know, mm -hmm. this bridge of the enterprise is going to be multiracial. There's going to be a black woman who's in a command position. There's going and to that be a was in the original series. In the very original series. So this was back when I was a kid feeling inspired that in spite of the race riots, there's a future where race is insignificant. And, and so it's sort of the I have a dream speech lived out as a TV series. Hmm. Yeah. And that has continued through the franchise, that sort of moral uh, posture and, and yes. reflection. 
Yeah. Profoundly philosophical conversations have been had throughout the whole series where what is right and what is wrong is a core question. Yeah. Um, so what distinguishes it from Star Wars is that it's more self-reflective and more explicitly about us. It's very explicitly about humanity and are we going to make it? And even more specifically, if you look below the surface, it's about the United States. Starfleet Academy is in San Francisco. So it's really, will we as Americans grow up? Will we as white people grow up? I mean, it's really pretty profound stuff. Yeah, and, and, and boy, right in the evolutionary bullseye. Exactly, and here we are with Star Trek Discovery coming again at the time of a new Cold War. And here we are at a reigniting of racial tensions. So many things in the culture wars coming to the surface and Star Trek coming back to try and help us reflect on ourselves and consider whether or not we can actually grow up. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, Corey, how would you position it? How, how, what's your, your thesis? Yeah, I, I agree with Cindy that, that for me, in terms of my sort of you know, life gestalt of entertainment experiences and pop culture and all that, they're very complementary to each other. Um, I definitely agree with that. There is sort of a yin yang sort of you know, way to hold the, these. For me, Star Wars is, is sort of operating on the level of archetype, right? So uh, a, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away is just another way of saying once upon a time. It takes place in sort of a timeless reality, right? Where the sort of the, the, the trappings, the technologies, all of that stuff is secondary to, you know, I, I think finding ways to illuminate um, you know, certain universals of the human condition. So no matter where in the galaxy you are, you're going to be dealing with love and fear and betrayal and ambition and, you know, all of this sort of the main themes of Star Wars is sort of, it, it feels a little bit more ever-present and archetypal in a sense. Whereas Star Trek is very much in the world of time. It's actually showing us, as Cindy says, it's sort of a, a roadmap of possible futures, which is... I think the main reason I've been so attracted to the franchise ever since I was a little kid, you know, I was born in 1977. So I grew up with um, uh, uh, the original series in syndication. And at first I loved it just because, you know, I had cool aliens and, um, you know, I, I enjoyed some of the, the, the allegories that came in, in some of that, um, that first series. But then I was 10 years old when The Next Generation started. And the next generation was, I mean, that was, that was a huge, I remember it as being a huge event when it came out. And um, I was right. Now, is that the John Luke Picard one? That's right. Yeah, yeah. that, was, that yes. was Picard's tenure. Yeah. Yeah. And that was huge. And that was, that was a big, you know, looking back at it now, I certainly didn't have this lens when I was 10 years old and watching the show. But looking back at it now, I can see this really interesting distinction from the original series to the next generation where, you know, oftentimes when we talk about science fiction, we talk about sort of the two uh, types of allegories that it holds. And one of them is very much about our present reality. And the other is very much about our future reality, what we could possibly become as we continue to unfold. I think that the original series was very much, you know, it was very much a, a response to what was happening in the 1960s. It was very much a response to the racial wars and the Cold War and, you know, even getting into the Vietnam War. There was, a, there was an episode that was sort of a not so subtle, you know, protest against the Vietnam War. Um, so 
the original series was very much, you know, let's use this, this, this imagining of our future as a way to contrast what we're going through today. With Next Generation, it became pretty unabashedly utopian, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the, the major innovation, the technological innovation that made Next Generation possible was the food replicator, or really just the, the, the replicator in general, which, which was able to you know, use machines to create any food that any person needs, any, you know, any materials that anyone needs, and was really responsible for pushing Starfleet into this radical post-scarcity economic system, basically, or, 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 or a tearing down of an economic system, maybe. Um, this, this very sort of social good uh, became possible and became sort of the, the driving force um, for the, mm-hmm. the next generation. And I think the values sort of reconfigured themselves to, to, to support that and to sustain that post-scarcity um, sort of drive that, that the Federation is, is, is moving through. Um, so having that contrast of the original series and next generation, I think was really potent and powerful for me. Um, I've always been very attracted to visions of our collective goodness, which I think Star Trek really carried, which really represented more than any other series or franchise mm-hmm. um, that I found, particularly, you know, decades ago. Totally. And then when, you know, when Star Trek just continued to grow into Deep Space Nine and Voyager and uh, Enterprise and, you know, now the new series, Discovery, all of which I've watched, um, it's, it's, there's, there's just so much to this mythos. There's, it's, it's huge. I mean, it's a massive, massive universe. And what excites me is the idea that it feels like we're still only scratching the surface in terms of the stories that are waiting to be told. Um, yeah. Well, this, this, this new one, the Discovery, actually takes place before the original William Shatner one. Yeah, it's about 10 years. Space. Yeah, uh, I was re- just re- reading that when I was reading about it. I didn't get it. I, plots are so confusing to me. But, uh, but I like the big themes. And mm-hmm. so one of the themes about Star Trek is the prime directive, right? And, um, and what is that? Uh, Cindy, do you want to take a stab at that? It, it... Sure. So the prime directive is designed to make sure they do not interfere in the evolutionary trajectory of any pre-warp civilization. Pre-warp wait, wait, wait. Okay, so that the, 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 the Star Trek people, the Enterprise. The Federation. The, the Federation, Federation has committed okay to not interfere with the evolution of planets and species who are not yet spacefaring. So in other words, pre-warp. So if they're not yet out there, if they're out there in space, then it's a whole different ballgame because they're already aware that there are alien species and they understand, they have a perspective on the universe that a more primitive culture cannot have. But the idea of unintended consequences and don't mess with evolution is a prime directive. Now, it's supposed to be treated as a sacred rule never to be broken, and then, of course, they have to break it occasionally. So complexity and increasing levels of complexity is what you see across the Star Trek franchise, that you start with a much more simplistic series with the William Shatner original series, sort of a cowboy hero leader, and then you get to much more complex forms of leadership, much more complex philosophical debates about what is the right thing to do in a given situation. But the prime directive is one of the touchstones they come back to again and again. And, and that, in the, the current series of Discovery, it's very, um, 
you know, comp all of that's very complex. Yeah. And yes. the characters carry, you know, good and bad. And, you know, they're real people in a way. And th that seems very different than the, you know, as you say, the simplistic William Shatner series, which would seem to me just like little morality tales. I guess they still are. Right. But they're just and more complex. For their time, for their era, they were amazingly intellectually challenging. And a lot of the sales, the trouble that they had pitching it was it was too intellectual. Mm. It needed to be a little more, you know, cowboys in space. Mm -hmm. So that was a challenge for Gene was to ride that line between enough adventure to be able to have the TV's NBC carry it, but not so much that he lost the opportunity for intellectual debate. But uh, Corey, I'd be interested in your take on this. What I perceive in the current series has began probably with Deep Space Nine and Voyager, this um, profound conflicting primary directives. So mm. you have the real primary directive of survival, which is mother nature and evolution's primary directive, you must survive. And then you have the Federation's goal to non-interfere, which is sort of a green goal, you know, like we don't know what's best for this civilization, leave them alone to develop in peace. Don't be all arrogant and intrude yourself into this. Mm -hmm. But in many episodes with the Borg and then now with Discovery, the reality of survival and the prime directive of survival is coming smack up against the prime directive of non-interference and all of their most noble, we don't do this stuff. All of their blue rules are just kind of ah, right. cratering in the face of all this tension. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. I would. And, you know, and, and for me, I think that the prime directive, which you describe as green, for me, it feels like it's, it's minimally green and is mm -hmm. often enacted in sort of a green way. But actually, I think that there are some sort of second tier qualities to the prime directive. Like one of the things that has always fascinated me about Starfleet values. So let me just say straight off, I, I believe Starfleet values are integral values. And I think one of the most fascinating thing about Starfleet values is that they, they do, they have a system, they have a code. Um, and that code is, is respected and it's honored. And there, you know, there is this sort of amber carrying wave um, that, that comes with, with Starfleet values. But it's a value system that actually allows all of these other value systems to coexist with it. Mm. And it doesn't, it's not a, a, uh, a it's not a value system that imposes itself on other values. So what Starfleet's not doing is coming into these pre-warp civilizations and trying to tailor them in a way that makes them, you know, more aligned with Starfleet values, for example. They just literally let these cultures do what they're going to do and go about their natural course um, until they get to a point where they're ready to either interface with Starfleet or they pose a, a threat to Starfleet. Um, so I, th I think that's, that's a really interesting quality. And as we know, developmentally, you know, integral is really the first value system that, that can coexist with all of these other preceding value systems out there, even if it sort of has to set up, you know, guardrails in order to, to protect itself. But for me, Cindy, where the story gets really, really interesting is because look, if it was, if it was just a prime directive and everyone followed it. And it really was nothing more than just this amber, black and white, you know, sort of rule set. The stories don't get very interesting. So for me, the, ver the, the, best, the best Star Trek episodes across all the, the various series are the ones where the captain has to make really, really difficult choices. 
and they have to weigh their own values, their own principles up against something like a prime directive, up against, you know, real survival threats. So I just, I just rewatched one of my favorite episodes in all of Star Trek history, which is a Deep Space Nine episode called In the Pale Moonlight. And I have never seen in, in really in, in most fiction that's out there, the impossible choices that these, you know, these, these, these captains are forced into making where there are, you know, there's, there's no wins, you know? So in, in the pale moonlight, the basic plot is uh, the Federation is about to get completely wiped out by an invading force called the Dominion, um, who's coming from another quadrant of the galaxy. And uh, Captain Sisko basically has to find a way to neutralize the threat or else, I mean, we're talking literally billions of lives are going to be extinguished. So he comes up with this plan to basically create a, a false report coming from the Cardassian. So fake news, Sisko's making <laughs> fake news yeah. and delivering that to the Romulans who are, who are friendly with the Dominion, trying to convince the Romulans that the, the Dominion's about to attack them. So you get into these black flag attacks and, um, wow. and, 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 you know, the episode, it keeps coming back to Captain Sisko's monologue where he's, grappling with these choices where he's, you know, I'm committing bribery. I'm responsible for innocent people dying um, just so that we can create this false flag scenario where the Romulans can come in and help us fight the Dominion and we can save our galaxy. Now, when I watched that episode, I would have made all the same choices as, as Captain Sisko in those, in those same circumstances, but you feel how it just really kind of rips his heart out of his chest. Mm -hmm. to, to make those sacrifices and to violate his own principles and his own values and his own, you know, sort of most deeply held virtues. Um, so that to me is where the plots get really interesting because, you know, as, as we know, life is filled with impossible decisions. It's never that, you know, uh, very, very seldomly does a major life choice come down to me where there's an easy answer. I mean, oftentimes we have to make these choices where either way, we're going to create some degree of suffering, either for people we care about, people in our vicinity, or for ourselves, or for what we value the most. And we're right. all going to have to make those decisions. And I think that Star Trek is, has, has um, it's a recurring theme for Star Trek that I think is, is among the best of their various plot lines. Right. So there's two other things I'd like to chase in this conversation that I think might be relevant. I love what you've said, and I agree that aspirationally, the Federation's values are integral. Mm -hmm. And the reality of how brutally difficult that is to enact is well played. There are a couple of things I also think Star Trek did a great job of, one of which was externalizing our interior nomadic structures by creating alien races that embody different parts of our, you know, our different V-memes. So using the spiral colors, because I'm just more familiar with them, like the Klingons embody a lot of red and purple, sort of mm -hmm. the bloodshed mind, warrior mind, and the tribal mind, uh, which informs a whole lot of the current TV series as well. Um, the Ferengi embody the worst of orange in yep. terms of greed and capitalism and the rules of acquisition is their Bible. That's their Bible, the rules of acquisition. Yep. The Vulcans embody a nobility of orange in terms of using logic to control the uncontrollable of the interior emotional state. The price they pay for that is a lack of access to green. 
Mm. So you mm. see this beautiful dilemma with yeah. the Vulcans. Because the and Vulcans can't, they're insensitive. They don't have the emotional intelligence. They've shut down their emotions. They, their emotions were so strong, they almost killed themselves in a civil war. So they basically made emotions evil, which sets up this wonderful um, tension mm. in Vulcans, especially in Spock, who was half human, half Vulcan. And in the new lead character in Discovery, who is human raised by Vulcans, mm. who herself is trying to be Vulcan, but she keeps having this human side, which she sees as a failing. But it's a theme we saw with Data in Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, how do we wrestle with our interior parts, our emotional part and our intellectual part, and how do those fit together? So I think the externalization of the internal drama is yeah. one of the real strengths of this whole Star Trek series, so that we can look at ourselves in a way that's just a little bit distant so we can make what is subject object and see it differently for the first time, whether yeah. it's our, our internal struggles or our external struggles, our Vietnam wars and our civil war riots. Well, well, the, 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 the current series, um, and as you say, it, it's, it's, it's precedes the, even the Shatner series in time, uh, they're fighting the Klingons. And those are the ones you, you identified as being purple or magenta and red. So yes. tribal and blood sacrifice and uh, mm -hmm. cannibalism. And yet there's flying around to these spaceships that look like huts, you know, and yeah. they have all of this sort of uh, filigree from, uh, from ancient indigenous, times. Yeah, indigenous. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very, very cool. And, mm -hmm. and, but they have that mindset. And, you know, it's really interesting to see how th the Klingons themselves are fighting with be, amongst themselves about how pure the, their religion and their devotion to their, you know, Messiah mm -hmm. is versus um, cooperating with each other and sort of just moving the ball forward and, you know, taking on some different ideas and heresies. And it, it, it reminds me, it takes you back to the ISIS, you know? Yeah, totally. The, yeah. Totally. And you can see the sort of Christian metaphor of coming together under blue or amber in the devotion to Kalis. Do you see that, Corey? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is, this is a civilization that is struggling for some sort of cohesion. They're at war with themselves. And what yes. they're looking for is, a, is a, um, you know, another enemy that can actually unite them, um, which evolutionarily would be actually appropriate for where that civilization is. And in a sense, Starfleet is actually helping the Klingons um, evolve their, their civilization by representing that common threat. Because the Klingons, you know, it, I mean, it sort of is, you know, we are getting sort of hints of, of Taliban here where, you know, the, the Klingons are relating to, you know, the oh-so-virtuous Starfleet as basically coming in and, and, you know, creating a cultural hegemony that the Klingons find completely threatening. They feel they're going to lose their identity just like in today's world, um, you know, all these ethnocentric states are afraid that they're going to lose their identity to globalism. I mean, even, you know, subcultures right here in, in the United States of America are, you know, that's sort of one of their big driving concerns. Um, so yeah, I, th I think that that was a, a beautiful allegory. And I want to double click on what you said earlier, Cindy. Um, 
how all these different races really do represent sort of different altitudes and the Betazoid, you know, next generation was sort of the greening of Star Trek. Yes. And, you know, where it was basically like, let's, let's take all the familiar positions, all the roles that we had in the previous Star Trek, but now we're going to add a therapist into the mix. <laughs> and, boy, and that's going to make everything green and sensitive. And she's a senior officer too. You exactly. Know? Exactly. And um, yeah, I, 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 I really liked her when I was about 13 years old. Um, <laughs> and uh and where was I going with that? Yeah, no, but she was she was very much the the, the greening of Star Trek. Um, yeah. she she added another one of those those important layers that was you Emotional know indispensable to Picard and and how he approached diplomacy. He was always found emotional intelligence. Yep, found emotional intelligence. So it's sort of the reconciliation of this: does EQ matter? Right. And then, of course, Whoopi Goldberg's character was brilliant. And mm -hmm. by the way, that's who I dress up as when I go to conventions. Are you Guinan? Yeah, I go as Guinan. Yeah, awesome. um, because she was like the executive coach of the starship, and I'm an executive coach. So there you go. Um, but she was the wisdom keeper as well, and sort of SQ as compassion and wisdom. I always felt like she embodied that. She could see big picture. She could see so many perspectives. She, of course, could even see through time, mm -hmm. oftentimes, which was amazing. And guide people with the right questions, never by telling them what right. they had to do. So she was a quite masterful and deep character and yeah. a great great ad well and this is this is another layer i wanted to bring in guys which is that you know it's, it's even drawing from earlier comparisons of star wars which has sort of you know an explicit spirituality in the form of the force that everyone knows mm -hmm. about and all that people often think of star trek as being sort of the more cognitive competence porn uh, sort of driven franchise out of the two. But I want to make the case that I think that Star Trek actually has a very, very strong spiritual impulse to it. Mm -hmm. Very strong spiritual impulse. And this is actually interesting because, you know, Roddenberry had a, a rule in when he was, when he was um, uh, you know, sort of the, the head honcho for the franchise. He had a rule. It was a no God rule mm -hmm. where basically, you know, people can't even say phrases like, oh, my God. Right. Because the idea was that society had so evolved from sort of the backwaters of myth and superstition that people don't use that that kind of language anymore. But so in a sense, some people actually related to Star Trek as being, well, that that feels anti-spiritual or at the very least it's anti-religious. And I think what it actually did is it opened up a space for a different kind of spirituality, a humanitarian spirituality to start shining through. And, you know, you, you talked about the Vulcans earlier and how, you know, they have this, this, you know, incredibly logical mind at the expense of sort of, of breaking off their, their subconscious, you know, emotional drives. But what they also have is this additional higher, this super conscious layer, this telepathic layer, right, where they can do, um, you know, they can, they can basically uh, mind read uh, anyone. So it's, it's showing this, this other intuitive layer that comes online. Uh, which I think is, is, is interesting in and of itself, as, you know, not to mention all the other godlike creatures that, that people, um, that, that the various crews experience out in space. But whenever I think about Star Trek and spirituality, um, for me, the most special moment um, was actually in the first Star Trek movie in 1979, I think it was, Star Trek The Motion Picture, which isn't a very popular movie. Mm -hmm. um you know it's probably more popular than five uh it's definitely not as popular as wrath of khan but it was you know it was the first first star trek movie that that we had received after the show had been off the air for something like 12 years um so it was, it was a big deal 
And there's actually a scene in the movie where uh, Spock is going to interface V'ger, um, who's, who's this you know, massive artificial intelligence that's invading the solar system. And as he approaches V'ger, he is, you know, it, it's interesting. Spock has this monologue and he's, he's basically going through like these concentric rings again and again. He's basically traveling through a giant cosmic vagina. <laughs> you know, and get and going through these veils and it's opening up and he's going and he actually, you know, like some of the lines is that I have penetrated the inner sanctum mm -hmm. and everything gets, it was, it was done by the same, uh, the same uh, visual effects artist that did 2001, the space odyssey at the very end. So, you know, it gets, it gets very trippy. And uh, for me, it was one of the strongest visions of the cosmic feminine that I had ever seen in any science fiction anywhere. You know, especially since science fiction is so, you know, everything is very phallic. It's just a bunch of rockets shooting up, you know? <laughs> and, and, and here we have Spock. I think, I think Corey's overthinking this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think maybe Deanna Troy got me into a, 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 a different, a different groove there. But, but no, yeah. I, I really do see that first, you know, the, the, just the, it was this, this celebration of a cosmic feminine intelligence and warmth and connectivity uh, that I just, I've never seen anywhere else. I, I haven't seen it again in Star, in Star Trek um, right. ever since that movie. But I do think that Star Trek is very, very capable of transmitting a spiritual signal. Yeah, I do too. I was re-watching the first episode of Discovery today to kind of get ready for our call. And I heard a line I had missed on the first go-round, which is not going to give anything significant away to those who haven't watched it. But as Michael Burnham, who is the Black female lead and is not the captain, which is radical on all of those levels to have a black female lead who is not the captain, is approaching in her jets pack suit to this art, big artifact, this giant ship. And she realizes how beautiful it is. And she says something about, they say sculpture is spirituality expressed. Yeah. And that's like in the first five or 10 minutes of yeah. the very first episode. Yeah. And it's like, I can't think that's just a throwaway line. You know, there was something being honored about the spirituality of the Klingons and the spiritual needs of everyone to express through art. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was beautiful, too. Mm -hmm. you know, and actually, like, really foregrounding aesthetics. I mean, just like Star Trek does such a great job of foregrounding ethics and morality and competence. And now it's, now it's actually foregrounding aesthetics in a very mm -hmm. powerful way. Um, and in a way that where that aesthetic channel actually becomes a spiritual channel mm -hmm. and the show itself, I think, reflects that it is one of the most beautifully rendered television shows I've ever seen. Ever. I heard you describe ever. it as a series of a series of, you know, one hour movies, movies. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. So yeah. last last August, I was at the Star Trek convention in Las Vegas and they had a so series of panels of people. Now, Discovery hadn't aired yet. So they were bringing in people who were actors, producers, costume designers, all people who were doing work on Discovery. And because it was close enough to Los, Los Angeles, I guess, they had trucked in a lot of the set materials and props. So there was a room where you could wait in line to go through and actually see the props from Discovery and sit in the chair. I got my photo in the chair. <laughs> <laughs> which was great. But listening to them describe the effort they put into this, it sounded like the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. When they created a culture 
And then they decided, okay, this culture, and of course the Klingon culture exists in the series, but like, mm -hmm. let's look more deeply at this. There are 24 houses. These 24 houses will not dress alike. They will have unique attire. They will have unique weaponry. They may have, because of being separated for long periods of time, some of them on different planets have different forehead structures. Mm -hmm. Like they were doing skull molds of these species and then deciding how to do the exterior ridges and whatever. The effort that they put into everything was just phenomenal. It yeah. would have, it made Lord of the Rings you know, kind of quality for a TV show, yeah. which was just amazing. And I listened to two of the actors who played Klingons talking about how they had to have two Klingon dialect coaches on the stage all the time with them because the Klingons speak Klingon in this show. Mm -hmm. And uh, Klingon, of course, they made, a, they made a point of pointing out was not a language that Gene Roddenberry invented. It was invented by the fans. Right. And so the fans created the language which has been folded back into the TV show. And I just think it's a beautiful co-creative process yeah. going on here. Yes. Oh, that is a, that, that's a point I really wanted to get to. That, and that co-creation um, is, is, is something that exists between the producers and the fans. But it also exists, you know, like, like Roddenberry had an original vision, right? And that vision actually calls the writers up to, I, I, I think, a, a, a higher point of view. Mm -hmm. it, it actually, it lifts people up. So if you're participating with a franchise in any way, you're actually adopting those Starfleet values yourself and you're creating from that space, which I think is one of the things that makes Star Trek such a virtuous franchise is, is its capacity to do that, not just for us fans that are following along, but for the actual creators themselves. They're, they're, they're taking part in, in uh, a process, a co-creative process that's actually calling upon their better angels. And how and, much fun must that be for a writer? Oh, how much, how inspiring must that be for a writer? And yeah. what you're talking about, Cindy, with the care that they're taking with the, the different skull structures. And that ex helps explain what I've been watching on this Klingon ship is that they all look the same, but different. Yep. Right. And, um, and, and just the, you know, the, the explosion of artistic uh, possibilities in creating these shows is, yep. it's beautiful. It really is. It really, and you know, it's fun to track too, because I, I love looking at it, especially when we have like a 50 year franchise like Star Trek, you can almost use it as like an archeology, span right? And, and there's a lot of different things that you can, you can track. One of which is, you know, how much have, have uh, you know, uh, uh, our capacities for production, how much have those evolved in the last 50 years? I mean, Star Trek Discovery, we're able to get this elegance and this ornateness because we have 3D printing now and they're actually fully using 3D printing in order to, to create their set pieces. Um, which I think is, is sort of fascinating to watch unfold because, you know, next generation to the original series was a quantum leap in and of itself. And here's a, yet another quantum leap from all the various 90s series to what we have today. Um, it's really fascinating to see that, that technological growth. Um, you know, alongside that, it's, it's an interesting barometer for how progressive values themselves have evolved over time. Like we can look back to the original series, uh, you know, the 1960s series, and you know, particularly for its time, 
it was bold. I mean, it was bold. It was pushing the envelope, right? I mean, it was so bold to the point where, uh, uh, I'm, I'm a terrible fan right now because I'm spacing her name, but Uhura, she was going to, the actress was going to Michelle leave. Nichols, Michelle Nichols. Thank you, Michelle Nichols. She got a phone call from Martin Luther King Jr. telling her, A, how much he loved her on the show, and B, how important it was that she stays on there because she was inspiring a whole new generation of young black children to say, this is our future, where we're going to be able to have a shared stage and a shared dignity with, with everyone else, right? Right alongside a Russian in the midst of the Cold War. So it was boldly progressive for its time and was really sort of pushing against the, the ceiling of cultural tolerance. And yet, and yet, you go back and you watch the first pilot. I'm pretty sure the first line of any Star Trek anywhere in the first pilot in the 1960s was uh, Christopher Pike saying, I, am, I still can't get used to a woman on the bridge. Yeah. Now that was interesting because Pike is a stand-in for the audience who also is not used to a woman on the bridge, right? But we look back, you know, and, and especially whenever like a pretty girl was on Star Trek, they would always coat the lens with Vaseline and <laughs> that glowy material. So there's a lot of, you know, sort of backwards versions of, of progressivism uh, in that original Star Trek. And it's fascinating to see how, again, how progressivism itself has evolved over the decades and how that evolution gets. Yeah, it's, I mean, God knows they certainly have, uh, uh, it is well integrated with the gay couple and the, uh, e even, there's even animal rights issues totally. in, in this uh, yep. discovery Absolutely. that are really touching, Yep, you know. And of course, the the captains and the bosses are women and men, and it's it's just completely uh, a full blown progressive vision at this yep. point. Yep. So a couple of things that occurred to me also to mention was that they made two big choices with this new TV show. One of which was to make a single story arc for the season, which is atypical. The previous Star Treks were episodic, so each story could kind of stand alone. This oh, is a single continuous story for this. 15 episodes and presumably will continue into the next ones. And secondly, it's not on regular broadcast TV. It's on CBS All Access, which gives them some freedom That's to right. have a little bit edgier programming than they could have had had they been on regular commercial television. So I, I think some of the goodness that's coming from this, the richness of it, is their ability to explore the dark side of themselves and other races and confront it in ways that they still said they want to stay kind of on the edge of PG-13. They still want to be a family show, but they're pushing that boundary all the time. It's some pretty tough stuff they deal with. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. So uh, I saw that they've renewed it. They're going to mm -hmm. do another season. Another season. And um, how, Cindy, are the Trekkies uh, taking to it? So you went to the convention before it was released. Now it's been released. Yeah, Is everybody like disappointed. Like I'm, I'm on a couple of different Facebook fan groups, and Corey and I have talked about it. Um, fans are difficult because fans are very emotionally attached to whatever aspect of it that they're emotionally attached to, and they're as opinionated as heck, and they always think they're right. There are plenty of us who think it's a brilliant series and love it. 
There are others who are angry about different aspects of it, that it's not the main character isn't a captain. You know, we're kind of used to that heroic leadership model, and this is a post-heroic leadership conversation. That's a very mature step to take, and it's a little uncomfortable for people who still want simpler answers and a hero to save the day. Um, so Cindy, I think- Could we just pause there for a second? Post-heroic, and, and I agree with you, but give us a, what, to give us a little bit of an explanation of how that shows up. So post-heroic leadership to me is when it's not always the captain or daddy, daddy or mommy, coming to the rescue of the group. And so the collective group has to struggle through what's the right thing to do. There are moments for a leader, but the leader doesn't have to be a single person. It can be this is one of the characteristics in Spiral Dynamics Yellow is that leadership is based on functional competence. Mm. So your leadership in that moment is based on whether you're the right person to be leading in that moment, not your rank. So the right person to lead in any given moment moves around. And one of the newbies, Ensign Tilly, is it Ensign? Mm -hmm. She's like the uh, cadet Tilly. She's just like a rookie. Captain um, Tilly. She becomes a captain in one of the episodes, so sort of a quirk we won't disclose, but um, yeah, she's very wise. And so she is a leader in moments. So it's fit to form, you know, when is the right fitness for a person to step forward? And when is the right moment to be a follower? Right. And uh, Captain Philippa Georgiou, who is the Asian captain of the Shenzhou at the very first episode, not giving anything away there, but she is also willing to defer. You know, she knows when to listen and follow because somebody else's intuition is strong. She trusts that person's intuition. She knows when to follow. So it's a much more complex view of leadership than, yes, Captain, you know. Right, well. right. <laughs> and I think, I think Captain Lorca gave us an interesting sort of contrast there, right? Because I think Picard very much, for example, very much subscribes to that second tier leadership where there's an inversion of the power pyramid almost where, you know, your, your staff, your crew is not there to support you. You're there to support your crew. Well, right. unless Lorca is your captain, in which case everything is about Lorca. About Lorca, right. You know? and, <laughs> and, and he was cool for it. I mean, he was, he was a great character for it. And there's fit to time, you know, the context mm -hmm. is crucial. So in a moment of crisis, you don't convene a team meeting, you know, you don't say, oh, well, the refinery's on fire, but let's just all huddle together and talk about the best way to deal with the refinery fire. You need someone to take charge and that's what rank is for. So it's sort of being able to be all of those things. You are the heroic captain when you need to be, and you are the follower when you need to be, and the ensign can be the leader when the ensign needs to be. Okay. Well, and that's a potent download of that to see that told in a story and to, you know, actually feel your way through as a viewer, mm -hmm. to see that happening. That's just a, a beautiful contribution artistically. Yeah. 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 And you know, the other thing I love about this too, Cindy, is that it's actually allowing this, this, this season, this show is allowing its characters to struggle. Mm -hmm. actually allowing them to struggle. And, you know, we've seen hints of that before. You're able to do that much better in a serialized uh, sort of approach. Single story like, arc. Like, yeah. And, and, you know, and to be fair, Star Trek did experiment with that. So the, the latter seasons of Deep Space Nine were a bit more serialized. And then Enterprise became even more serialized. And in fact, with Enterprise, the more serialized it became, the better the show got. Mm -hmm. um, which is why it was a shame that it got cut off because seasons three and four are actually really strong for Enterprise, but man, seasons one and two can be a bit of a slog to get through. 
Um, but Discovery has that has that you now. And what I love seeing is is the characters <laughs> actually giving the opportunity to fail. Yeah. Right. In that very first episode, that, that was Michael's moment to shine. And she, you know, just like I was talking about how Cisco in Deep Space Nine had to sacrifice his virtues and his values and his principles and do something that he knew he, sh you know, didn't want to do, but it was for the greater good. That was exactly, exactly the position that Michael Burnham was in in episode one of Discovery. And guess what? She fucked up. <laughs> Big time. She, she chose wrong. She tried yeah. to make that, you know, Kohlberg stage three sort of decision and she chose wrong and she suffers the consequences because of it. And we're actually able to see that, that her choice, her bad choice actually becomes important for her character development. And I think that's something new that we're starting to see. And in, in, again, we saw glimmers of it. We saw glimmers of it after Picard was, you know, abducted by the Borg and basically, you know, mentally and spiritually raped by the Borg and sort of the right. husk that it left him afterwards. And he sort of took on this Captain Ahab complex. So we're, we're able to see characters struggle in the past, but the serialized nature of storytelling here really allows us to, to go with them on that journey and to feel their pains and to feel, you know, the, the anguish of the decisions that they're trying to make and, uh, you know, the challenges that they have in sort of accepting the consequences of those decisions which comes right back to the real world we're in today as we face a political chaotic upheaval that seems very regressive. Um, will we come out the other side? So we're back to asking the same questions that Gene Roddenberry asked back in the 1960s. The ugly underbelly of racism has raised its ugly head again. Uh, the Me Too movement has exposed how far we still have to go on issues of sexism. Um, we don't even need to talk about what's going on in the White House. So it's just like, wow, how did we get here? And are we even worthy as a species of being allowed to continue? Or should evolution just go, that was a mistake. What else you got, you know? Right. Right. Well, clearly yeah. we got to find a way out of the mirror universe that we currently reside Inhabit. in. Yes, indeed. Could you just do a quick explanation of the mirror universe? Yeah, sure. So the Mirror Universe was a really, I would say, goofy and sort of clunky plot device first used by the original series, where basically, um, you know, they go, they go into a parallel dimension where all the same characters exist, except they're all evil and have goatees. So well, there's a I think, transporter, I think the transporter accident. There's a there's transporter, transporter accident. accident, and good Kirk goes to the bad universe, and bad Kirk goes to the good universe. Well, what That's an it. interesting, I mean, just in terms of multi-perspectivalism. Yeah. Yes. It's just, again, what art can do. Yeah, that's right. And, and so Discovery actually picked up the Mirror Universe plotline, which, you know, again, a few of the other series ha have sort of some episodes. I don't think Voyager ever did Mirror Universe, but all the others did in their own way. Uh, one of the best being, by the way, if I can shout it out, Enterprise. The last two episodes of Enterprise right before the series finale, which you can totally skip. It was a horrible finale. But those last two episodes of Enterprise you are were, something. were amazing Mirror Universe episodes. Amazing. I don't know which of the two of you are, are crazier. <laughs> but, I mean, this, I guess 50 years of this is, as an evolving art form. And it's worthy of this kind of scholarship. I wear my Starfleet Academy jacket with pride. Oh, <laughs> God bless you. And I got my disco shirt, baby. For yeah. Discovery. Disco for discovery. Is that right? Oh, yeah. cool. Yeah, well, I just have my blue shirt on today. <laughs> but 
Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so any final thoughts? Uh, we're, you know, over time, but who cares? Uh, but we could, we could do a, we, we, where, where we, we, we could do a round of quick questions. Okay. Jeff, who's your favorite Star Trek alien race? See, I don't know them well enough, but the, I gotta say, the Klingons in this current season, the Discovery season, are very, very interesting. And the art direction and the way they create this, you know, purple uh, magenta world and red world uh, is, I find, th those scenes are riveting to me. Mm. I love the Klingons. Cindy? Yeah. Uh, kind of rips my heart out to have to pick one, but if I had to pick one, I'd probably say the Vulcans. Vulcans. Mr. Spock was my first love. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Even more than Kirk. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a sucker for the Andorians, the blue guys with the antenna, because they're just so classic 1960s Martian. And mm -hmm. again, Enterprise, they have an Andorian character who is one of my favorite characters from across the franchise. He's, he's awesome. So I'm, I'm a sucker for Okay, favorite captain? Jeff. Um, Picard, because I know him the best. And he, who's the actor, for God's sakes? Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart, I, he's just magnetic to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say Jean-Luc Picard as well for me. He's an INTJ, I'm an INTJ. He just is Mr. Upright, self-sacrificing, do the right thing. Um, I'd want him captaining my ship or my country anytime. Yeah. Total and how about, Picard how about you? Total Picard fanboy over here. Yeah. Really? Yeah. We we have we have total agreement here. We have consensus. When cool. they do these surveys at the conventions, Picard usually wins as well. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Maybe a more interesting question would have been who's your least favorite captain? You know, that's hard because I'd have to say watching it in retrospect, it's probably Kirk. Yeah, um, because of the cowboy arrogance. Yeah. But in the that's for the original series. I like the new Kirk in the movies better in the alternate timeline. Um, but I'd say he was just a little immature, mm. brilliant but immature. How about you, Corey? I'm going Archer. Captain Archer was my least favorite captain. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but it's a, it's tough because Janeway really got on my nerves. <laughs> Was she too handsy? She was always touching people. Yeah, she was, was and, you know, she made, and she made some dubious ethical calls there. She really did. She really yeah. did. Yeah. All right. Well, before we get too deep in the weeds, uh, I just want to thank you both so much. I feel like I've really learned a lot and gotten the download on this, you know, great work of, of, of popular art uh, that has been so influential in our culture. And um, so thank you, Cindy Wigglesworth. My pleasure. May we all live long and prosper. Oh, you did that really good. Thank you. <laughs> and, and, and Corey DeVos, thank you so much. Hey, thank you, buddy. This yeah. has been awesome. Thanks for letting us geek out for a while. Yeah, cool. And check out Corey's essay, um, Star Trek Discovery, The Moral Arc of the Universe, which we'll link to. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to The Daily Evolver, and we will see you next time.